You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Leah Zumita, a clinical nurse specialist in adult and critical care and the director of the LLS Clinical Trial Support Center. I'm so honored and excited to be the guest host of this episode. Today, we'll be discussing the importance of clinical trials, patient concerns about clinical trials, the barriers to clinical trial participation, including disparities, strategies to overcome these barriers and disparities, and how clinical trials have been impacted by COVID-19. In this episode, we will be joined by Dr. Lorenzo Falke, Assistant Attending on the Lymphoma Service at Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York, New York. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Falke. Thanks, Leah. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. All right, Dr. Falke, let's jump right in. Clinical trials are a key step in advancing all cancer treatments. Can you provide our listeners today with an overview of clinical trials and why they're so important? Certainly. You said it right. Clinical trials are the pillar of progress in biomedical research. That's true in oncology and hematology, which is my area of expertise, but it's true across medical specialties in general. When I have to approach a patient talking about a clinical trial or offering a clinical trial or just simply offering options that may include a clinical trial, I think it's always very important to keep in mind that everything that we do today as a standard of care, or what we call a standard of care, once was a clinical trial. And that's how we establish standards of care. So it's important to keep in mind that on the one hand, it is an act of courage. It is an act of commitment to participate into a clinical trial. And we're always very thankful to our patients for that. But it is also being part of potentially making new standards of care And generally speaking, at least this is my view and my practice, we work closely with industry and academic institutions to bring to fruition clinical trials that we believe in, we deeply believe in, with agents or combinations of agents that we believe are promising and are a step forward compared to either the standard of care or what's perceived to be the standard of care. So I think that at an institution like Memorial Sloan Kettering, where clinical trials are really the DNA of what we do, just like many other large or medium-sized institutions that have availability in their portfolio of clinical trials, it's really very important to maintain a healthy proportion of our patients within a possibility of accessing clinical trials. That's so well said, and I really agree. And you know, I think one of the challenges that we face in hematology and oncology is certain myths or misconceptions about clinical trials. And unfortunately, I hear all too often from patients that they associated clinical trials with meaning they have no other options available to them and that they've exhausted all of their resources. So you and I definitely appreciate that that's not the case, but would you like to speak about that? 
Yeah, that's a misconception that one would hope had been dissipated by now, but it hasn't. And part of that is potentially lack of effective communication. So yet another reason to be thankful for you, Leah, and for LLS for hosting these podcasts, because it really gives us the opportunity to help dissipate some of these concerns or fears. There's clinical trials belong to many different categories. As many of our colleagues know, of course, they go from a preclinical stage where drugs and are tested in first in cell lines in the laboratory and then in animals that are preclinical models. And then they get first tested in human beings through three phases, really four, but three major phases of clinical trials in the phase one, where in other disciplines, healthy volunteers are tested. In oncology, more often are patients that are tested because of obvious ethical reasons. A phase two clinical trials where we know that a drug is safe. Now we want to know if and how effective it is. And then phase three clinical trials when we are confident enough in a new drug that we want to compare it to the existing standard of care. I would say that my area of expertise is lymphoma, so I, I can certainly speak for lymphoma and hematologic malignancies, but this is certainly true across oncology. More and more, there is an incentive for producers and consumers of experimental study drugs and new drugs in general to really bring to fruition drugs that we are confident in and we believe in that will be at least as good as what we have now and probably better than what we have now. What you were referring to is particularly true in phase one clinical trials when there's a first in human trial, when there's a medication that was never tested in human beings. Sometimes those trials, particularly in solid oncology, are reserved for patients where we exhausted our options. And that is a very legitimate space to run clinical trials. But more often, and more and more, I would say, we are now bringing new drugs that are highly promising. For instance, immunotherapy is rich in drugs that are highly promising today to patients who have a very long life expectancy ahead of them, who have even curative options where we think that we could increase that percentage of patients who are being cured. And so we're really in a position where we're offering clinical trials at the cutting edge of a curative intent treatment or highly effective treatments, where we know we're not only not going to detract from the effect, efficacy of existing standards, but more likely than not, probably adding to that efficacy. That's great. And I'm in the clinical trials all the time, helping patients identify which ones they may be potentially eligible for. And for all of the hematologic malignancies right now, there are about 1,600 active clinical trials which is remarkable. And, you know, as you said, some of those are for people who are looking for first-line therapy. They're newly diagnosed, haven't previously been treated. As you mentioned, there are trials for patients who have relapsed or been refractory to their prior treatment. But there are clinical trials for people on maintenance and in remission and into survivorship too. So again, I think you did a really good job of explaining that for our listeners today. So thank you. Oh, absolutely. And I would add also that you're actually touching a very important point. One of the goals of building what we call a healthy clinical trial portfolio is to cover all the settings. And you mentioned the word maintenance, you mentioned the word frontline therapy. If you think of a patient being diagnosed, and if you think of their disease as a journey, we want to be able to walk with the patient and be able to offer innovative and potentially more effective clinical trial options at every step of that journey. And that includes their first diagnosis, their first or subsequent relapses, or their maintenance, or for example, their early treatments when by current standards, sometimes you wouldn't necessarily begin a treatment that is true, for example, for in slow growing lymphomas. So we try to find all the niches and spaces. So we're sort of quote unquote covered 
in offering clinical trials for any kind of patient that kind of walks through our door. That's excellent. The literature is full of barriers to clinical trial enrollment. We know that 20% of clinical trials actually close because they can't accrue enough patients. Some of the other common barriers include strict inclusion-exclusion criterion, travel challenges, financial concerns, which certainly includes health insurance coverage, lack of social supports. In the setting of COVID-19, what have you seen as the impact on clinical trials? Wow, that's a big question, (laughs) but it is a very obviously timely and important one. First, let me address the barriers to access to clinical trial temporarily and maybe artificially removing COVID-19 from the picture, just to sort of go over what the more common barriers that we encounter are. And you're right, there's a percentage of trials that get closed because they don't accrue enough. In those cases, my point of view is ask yourself first if the question you're trying to answer with a clinical trial is a meaningful one, and B, if there is a patient population for it, because a drug is only so good as we can administer it to people if there is not enough patients, for example, for a clinical trial, and this is often the case for rare diseases, perhaps the design of the study should incorporate teaming up with other centers or referring to cooperative groups such as the SWAG or the ECOG or the CALGB. Sometimes industry helps with that because there are entities that put together different groups, not only from one nation, but sometimes globally from across continents. So those are some of the ways, I think, that we could overcome that barrier to poor accrual. Other barriers to poor accrual that also have to do with potential disparities include sometimes a lack of communication or effective communication on our part as providers, and sometimes just as simple as a lack of enthusiasm in conveying how, for example, promising a clinical trial option could be. But more often is not on the provider's part, more often is on the patient's part where certain patients, for a variety of reasons that I would note they're not necessarily only racial or cultural or religious. There could be many, many different reasons why people are reluctant to participate into a clinical trial. Socioeconomic stratum, education, there could be many different reasons. And our ability and our job is to make sure that we are able to bridge those gaps and identify which is the specific hurdle for that patient to be able to access a clinical trial, particularly when we think that that clinical trial will be truly beneficial for that patient. I'm very proud to say that at MSK, with my team and my colleagues' teams do a really wonderful job in trying to reach out to patients and offer help institutionally and, and at a service level that is concrete help, logistical, sometimes financial, to try and make it possible for them uh, to access clinical trials. On the logistical side particularly, I'm really happy to be part of an institution that has not only one main campus, but also other satellite sites across New York and New Jersey state areas where we now are able to bring clinical trials close to the patient's homes if they live, for example, outside the city. And we all know who's from New York or the surrounding areas, how difficult it could be sometimes to commute to the city. And often clinical trials, as you well know, require a lot of commuting, a lot of time commitment. And so it's important for us to make it as easy as possible for patients to be able to access that. Now, COVID-19 obviously came disrupting the whole biomedical research sort of workflow. And I think it, on the one hand, it represented a huge challenge. And let's be real, it is more a challenge than an opportunity 
but it is also an opportunity because it pushed us to become creative and identify new ways of getting patients to highly engaged and to participate into our clinical research activities, frankly, even standard of care. For example, the advent and rapid improvement of telemedicine capabilities has made it very easy for us to talk with patients at their home, have very sensitive discussions about the value of a clinical trial, or even just discuss results of a certain test while they're at home with their own family, as opposed to being in our office without visitors, or maybe with one visitor at most, hearing about scary things and having to listen to very complicated explanations of mechanism of actions of a drug or things of that nature. So I think there certainly have been opportunities. But make no mistake, COVID-19 has been a big barrier for clinical trial advancement, both because patients unfortunately do contract COVID-19, also because a lot of our treatments, this is certainly true in lymphoma and hematologic malignancies, but it is true across oncology in general. Uh, most of our treatments are immunosuppressive and sometimes you know, deciding whether or not to offer a clinical trial, particularly when we don't have an expectation of meaningful improvement of survival, becomes very difficult in terms of weighting the risks and benefits of treating a patient that's potentially also at risk of fatal COVID-19 disease. I have to say, at Memorial Sloan Kettering, we've been very diligent about keeping open our trial portfolio. And through the thick of the pandemic, we were able to continue to accrue patients and I don't recall the exact figures, but we weren't too much under our usual enrollment for the year 2020, which really reflects the amazing work that the research teams are putting into this. And as physicians, we're very privileged because, true, it's very difficult to speak to patients about clinical trials, but then there's a lot of logistical work that goes into actually physically enrolling a patient and having them to participate into the trial. And that's all on the research teams. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, our research teams, and I'm sure this is the same at most other institutions, have worked mostly from home. So consenting patients from home, drugs shipping to collect tests, scheduling tests, it's all very challenging, but we've been able to do it. And I think that the more we go, the COVID-19 pandemic will be an opportunity for us to be our better selves as opposed to a barrier for clinical research. I agree. And in our experience as nurse navigators, we also agree that a silver lining to all this has been the ability to achieve second opinions and other consults virtually. I think the challenge moving forward for us in the healthcare space is to make sure that providers like yourself have the reimbursement, have the licensure ability to continue providing those services because they are so important for our patients. Yes, absolutely. The licensure, you touched on a very important point. The licensure has been a large issue. This is not the place, and I'm probably not in the position to comment too much about this, other than to say, at the very beginning of the pandemic, obviously, there has been a much openness cross-practicing in other states where we might have had referral for patients from other states, or we would have patients who we were previously following from other states, and we were able to continue to follow via telemedicine. Now we're returning to a more traditional model where licensure requirements are more strict. And some people may find it jarring considering what's going on still in terms of pandemic for us to be required to have a sort of a quote-unquote old-fashioned model of licensure and yet be required to do telemedicine across the country. So I'm hoping that there will be some reconciliation there. Agreed. And to receive a blood cancer diagnosis has to cause so much anxiety. There's so much fear of the unknown. And COVID-19 has only exacerbated that, right? Because as you mentioned, this patient population has increased 
morbidity and mortality with COVID-19, which then makes it challenging to travel and be away from home. I loved that you acknowledged that patients aren't able to have their visitors with them in many of these areas as well, which from a psychosocial aspect, it can be so detrimental. And now we have this next wave of challenge where we're not sure about the efficacy of the COVID vaccine for some of our blood cancer patients. So the unknowns keep compiling for this group of patients and healthcare providers as well. It's challenging for all of us. So I appreciate the efforts that you're doing for your patients. Can we talk a little bit more about the disparities in clinical trial participation? Because ultimately, we want the people that enroll in a clinical trial to reflect the diversity of our society, correct? And so can you talk a little bit about what that looks like and maybe some areas that as healthcare providers we can focus on? Sure. I actually happen to have had done some disparities research several years ago at one of my previous institutions. And so I confronted myself with the issue firsthand. I think that disparities account for a major problem or a major portion of patients not being able to access clinical trials. I think that's a reality. I think that acknowledging that reality is certainly the first step. And I think that being very positive and very enthusiastic about being able to offer clinical trial is always a good start. But at the same time, we have to be able to bridge some of the glaring, obvious gaps that are there and impede so many of our patients or prevent so many of our patients to access clinical trials. I guess my overarching comment would be that as a healthcare provider, I think there are things that we can do, but I also think there are things that we cannot do alone. We cannot change some of the perceptions that are prevalent about clinical research in particular groups of individuals unless the leaders of those communities and those groups help us out. And you can go to the COVID-19 pandemic and just translate the same exact concepts to clinical trials. So what has happened with COVID-19, right? We have had pockets of individuals that have been hesitant, fearful, or reluctant to be vaccinated. And in several cases, leaders of their communities have been instrumental in engaging many communities into coming in and accepting vaccination. And the vaccination has been proven safe and I still think effective, though I acknowledge that we might have a new problem now. But the point being, it's always a a multilateral effort. So as far as we are concerned in terms of clinician healthcare providers, I can speak more from my own perspective of academic and clinical investigator, because more than half of my job is to create and conduct clinical trials. My tenet is to always be first and foremost educational about the value of clinical trials. There is no point in being excited about a clinical trial unless I can convey that excitement to the recipient of the clinical trial. And so one of my core tenets is to really be a teacher even before being a doctor to my patients. It is much easier for a patient to accept and understand and eventually participate into a clinical trial if they understand why you're doing what you're doing. Why are you, doctor, proposing to me a trial with drug A, B, and C? Why should they get that as opposed to the standard of care? You have to be very clear and very granular at the same time without running the risk of speaking in so much jargon that the patient just doesn't understand really what you're talking about. 
for example, I have immunotherapy trials. If I'm excited about an immunotherapy trial and I want to talk to a patient about it, let's say I have, I don't know, a PD-1 inhibitor, okay? You want to talk to a patient about it. You can't start talking about the T-cell subsets and how the PD-1 is an immune checkpoint and how blocking that checkpoint is going to engage the CD8 T-cells. Like, they don't understand that and they shouldn't. And that's not their job. Like, I'm not a lawyer. I don't understand lawyer language. Mm -hmm. And so I think for us, Teaching from the first moment that we meet our patients before acting is really the number one core tenet. The number two core tenet for me is getting feedback from the patients. Because sometimes we go at length in our conversations, we speak kind of unilaterally without giving them an opportunity to speak. And then perhaps a patient doesn't enroll into a clinical trial because they had a question that you just failed to answer or a concern that maybe is the easiest concern on the planet to address, but you didn't because you didn't listen in the first place. And so I always give a moment where I talk and teach and maybe draw or sketch out something. And then I give the patients and their family members ample time to reveal their concerns or their fears. Because even hearing a patient talk about their concerns tells you a lot about themselves, about where they're coming from. And it can tell you and can give you clues as to how difficult or easy it might be to address that concern. So it's always a two-way communication. So for me, it's really, it's the groundwork that matters because once a patient entrusts you with their well-being, which is an honor and a privilege in the first place, then it's relatively easier to get across some maybe finer points or having a more nuanced conversation. But if the patient doesn't have that sense of trust and and doesn't think that you actually mean what you're saying or that you don't believe 100% in that clinical trial, then neither will they. And I'd imagine that these conversations don't always happen in one encounter, right? You have to build upon this education each time you meet with someone. Yes, that is completely true. And I can give you my example as a lymphoma doctor. Some lymphomas are very chronic, slow growing. They give you time. Some others are very fast, aggressive. You don't have as much time. And so what we tend to do as a team is identify patients who could potentially benefit from a clinical trial early on and then begin a conversation even before getting a scan, even before getting a biopsy, if we do have a concern that disease might be coming back or if there is a concern for disease in the first place, so that we have at least two or three times when we can talk about the clinical trial and reinforce it. We also provide informed consent sometimes to read upon. So sometimes I don't know what to ask until they at least get some basic information. And then lastly, we have, as I said before, many members of a clinical research team. And so once the patient is interested in, in a clinical trial and we offer them the informed consent, patients entrust us and us to sign that informed consent, then our clinical research team members will reach out to answer any questions that the patients might have. And that's not just me. So before and after they talk with me, they talk with also a number of other team members. And that's important because A, my perspective is different than the one of my team members because we're not, obviously, we don't think with the same brain. But also the language that we use is different because I use the language that Dr. MD uses and Sometimes I may not be able to just find that little chemistry that you need with a patient to get across some concepts or to be able to elicit some of their concerns. Maybe they don't voice certain concerns to me as the physician, but maybe they will to the nurse or maybe they will to the nurse practitioner or maybe they will to their research associate. And so the collection of feedback from all my team members and mine really gives us a much richer picture of where the patient stands. Are we confident that this clinical trial is the best idea for these particular patients at this particular time and then move forward? 
It's a great model for so many of our listeners here. So I really appreciate you taking the time to explain it to us, but also the benefit that your patients and caregivers receive from being under the care of yourself and your team members is really remarkable. For those folks listening today who might not have the resources available to help get this information together for patients, or they may not have the time to do it because they're in a busy practice, or they may not have clinical trials within their own institution, those are all additional challenges to the process. And I'd love to just take a minute to share what we're doing at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society to help overcome some of those added challenges to clinical trial enrollment. And absolutely, thank you. I always tell people wanting to enroll in a clinical trial and actually enrolling is usually not a straight path. There are just so many bumps in the road, and you've done a great job today explaining what many of those are and how to help overcome them. But the Clinical Trial Support Center at LLS is a group of nine nurse navigators with special expertise in blood cancer, and we work with patients or their caregivers or their healthcare providers to help identify potential clinical trials and overcome those barriers to enrollment. And we do that in a unique model. It's a dedicated nurse for each patient who works with that patient throughout the entire duration of the clinical trial process. And I see our department very much as an extension of the healthcare team, like yourself and other providers listening today. We have the ability and resources to be able to do that deep dive into the clinical trial search. We can do the comprehensive nursing and psychosocial assessments to really get to know that patient, have an appreciation of what their understanding is for their treatment options. And maybe it's about talking to them about second opinions, or maybe it's giving them questions to go back and ask that doctor, like you mentioned. There are so many important questions before you enroll in a clinical trial. So we are here to help patients and family members. We also have the ability for providers such as yourself or other providers listening today to directly refer their patients to us. And what happens is that nurse will then reach right out to that patient, work one-on-one with them to come up with an individualized list of trials. We give any list we provide back to the patient, emphasizing that they should take it back to their provider or to a second opinion for that medical expertise and really emphasizing the shared decision-making, which you've done such a great job of explaining today because it is so important. So if providers are listening today, they are thinking of patients in mind who a clinical trial might be a good option, um, please feel free to reach out to the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. You can call our Information Resource Center at one 800 955-4572. We have information specialists, including bilingual specialists, who are ready to take your call, and they can provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn more about their disease, their treatment, financial resources, and other support services. We also have an online referral form that you can find at lls.org forward slash ctsc. Dr. Falky, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This was incredibly informative. I want to also thank our listeners for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, publications, and other resources. Please visit lls.org forward slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient to our LLS services, please contact our Information Resource Center at 1-800-955-4572. And as I mentioned, LLS clinical trial nurse navigators are ready to help you navigate this complicated process. The LLS copay assistance program assists patients with treatment-related copays and deductibles for prescribed medications, insurance premiums, non-diagnostic labs, scans, and tests. 
For more information on program eligibility and how to apply, please visit lls.org forward slash copay. I encourage you to sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org forward slash podcast. Thank you again, Dr. Falke, and we look forward to having you all join us on future podcasts. Thanks for having me again. My pleasure. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society and access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.